Chapter 7, Part F of The Wealth of Nations, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 4, Chapter 7, Part F of Colonies. Examples are not wanting of empires in which all the different provinces are not taxed, if I may be allowed the expression, in one mass, but in which the sovereign regulates the sum which each province ought to pay, and in some provinces assesses and levies it as he thinks proper, while in others he leaves it to be assessed and levied as the respective states of each province shall determine. In some provinces of France, the king not only imposes what taxes he thinks proper, but assesses and levies them in the way he thinks proper. From others he demands a certain sum, but leaves it to the states of each province to assess and levy that sum as they think proper. According to the scheme of taxing by requisition, the Parliament of Great Britain would stand nearly in the same situation towards the colony assemblies as the King of France does towards the states of those provinces which still enjoy the privilege of having states of their own, the provinces of France which are supposed to be the best governed. But though, according to this scheme, the colonies could have no just reason to fear that their share of the public burdens should ever exceed the proper proportion to that of their fellow citizens at home, Great Britain might have just reason to fear that it never would amount to that proper proportion. The Parliament of Great Britain has not, for some time past, had the same established authority in the colonies which the French king has in those provinces of France which still enjoy the privilege of having states of their own. The colony assemblies, if they were not very favorably disposed, and unless more skillfully managed than they ever have been hitherto, they are not very likely to be so, might still find many pretenses for evading or rejecting the most reasonable requisitions of Parliament. A French war breaks out, we shall suppose. Ten millions must immediately be raised in order to defend the seat of the empire. This sum must be borrowed upon the credit of some parliamentary fund mortgaged for paying the interest. Part of this fund Parliament proposes to raise by a tax to be levied in Great Britain, and part of it by a requisition to all the different colony assemblies of America and the West Indies. Would people readily advance their money upon the credit of a fund which partly depended upon the good humor of all those assemblies, far distant from the seat of the war, and sometimes, perhaps, thinking themselves not much concerned in the event of it? Upon such a fund, no more money would probably be advanced than what the tax to be levied in Great Britain might be supposed to answer for. The whole burden of the debt contracted on account of the war would, in this manner, fall, as it always has done hitherto, upon Great Britain, upon a part of the empire, and not upon the whole empire. Great Britain is, perhaps, since the world began, the only state which, as it has extended its empire, has only increased its expense without once augmenting its resources. Other states have generally disburdened themselves, upon their subject and subordinate provinces, of the most considerable part of the expense of defending the empire. Great Britain has hitherto suffered her subject and subordinate provinces to disburden themselves upon her of almost this whole expense. In order to put Great Britain upon a footing of equality with her own colonies, which the law has hitherto supposed to be subject and subordinate, it seems necessary 
upon the scheme of taxing them by parliamentary requisition, that Parliament should have some means of rendering its requisitions immediately effectual, in case the colony assemblies should attempt to evade or reject them. And what those means are, it is not very easy to conceive, and it has not yet been explained. Should the Parliament of Great Britain at the same time be ever fully established in the right of taxing the colonies, even independent of the consent of their own assemblies, the importance of those assemblies would, from that moment, be at an end, and with it, that of all the leading men of British America. Men desire to have some share in the management of public affairs, chiefly on account of the importance which it gives them. Upon the power which the greater part of the leading men, the natural aristocracy of every country, have of preserving or defending their respective importance, depends the stability and duration of every system of free government in the attacks which those leading men are continually making upon the importance of one another and in the defence of their own consists the whole play of domestic faction and ambition the leading men of america like those of all other countries desire to preserve their own importance they feel or imagine that if their assemblies which they are fond of calling parliaments and of considering as equal in authority to the Parliament of Great Britain, should be so far degraded as to become the humble ministers and executive officers of that Parliament, the greater part of their own importance would be at an end. They have rejected, therefore, the proposal of being taxed by parliamentary requisition, and, like other ambitious and high-spirited men, have rather chosen to draw the sword in defense of their own importance. Towards the declension of the Roman Republic, the allies of Rome, who had borne the principal burden of defending the state and extending the empire, demanded to be admitted to all the privileges of Roman citizens. Upon being refused, the social war broke out. During the course of that war, Rome granted those privileges to the greater part of them, one by one, and in proportion as they detached themselves from the general confederacy. The Parliament of Great Britain insists upon taxing the colonies and they refuse to be taxed by a parliament in which they are not represented. If to each colony which should detach itself from the general confederacy, Great Britain should allow such a number of representatives as suited the proportion of what it contributed to the public revenue of the empire, in consequence of its being subjected to the same taxes, and in compensation admitted to the same freedom of trade with its fellow subjects at home, the number of its representatives to be augmented as the proportion of its contribution might afterwards augment, a new method of acquiring importance a new and more dazzling object of ambition would be presented to the leading men of each colony instead of piddling for the little prizes which are to be found in what may be called the paltry raffle of colony faction they might then hope from the presumption which men naturally have in their own ability and good fortune to draw some of the great prizes which sometimes come from the wheel of the great state lottery of british politics unless this or some other method is fallen upon and there seems to be none more obvious than this of preserving the importance and of gratifying the ambition of the leading men of america it is not very probable that they will ever voluntarily submit to us and we ought to consider that the blood which must be shed in forcing them to do so is every drop of it the blood either of those who are or of those whom we wish to have for our fellow-citizens they are very weak who flatter themselves that in the state to which things have come our colonies will be easily conquered by force alone 
the persons who now govern the resolutions of what they call their continental congress feel in themselves at this moment a degree of importance which perhaps the greatest subjects in europe scarce feel from shopkeepers tradesmen and attorneys they are become statesmen and legislators and are employed in contriving a new form of government for an extensive empire which they flatter themselves will become and which indeed seems very likely to become one of the greatest and most formidable that ever was in the world five hundred different people perhaps who in different ways act immediately under the continental congress and five hundred thousand perhaps who act under those five hundred all feel in the same manner a proportionable rise in their own importance almost every individual of the governing party in america fills at present in his own fancy a station superior not only to what he had ever filled before but to what he had ever expected to fill and unless some new object of ambition is presented either to him or to his leaders if he has the ordinary spirit of a man he will die in defence of that station it is a remark of the president Hainault that we now read with pleasure the account of many little transactions of the league which when they happened were not perhaps considered as very important pieces of news but every man then says he fancied himself of some importance and the innumerable memoirs which have come down to us from those times were the greater part of them written by people who took pleasure in recording and magnifying events in which they flattered themselves they had been considerable actors how obstinately the city of paris upon that occasion defended itself what a dreadful famine it supported rather than submit to the best and afterwards the most beloved of all the french kings is well known the greater part of the citizens or those who govern the greater part of them fought in defence of their own importance which they foresaw was to be at an end whenever the ancient government should be re-established our colonies unless they can be induced to consent to a union are very likely to defend themselves against the best of all mother countries as obstinately as the city of paris did against one of the best of kings the idea of representation was unknown in ancient times when the people of one state were admitted to the right of citizenship in another they had no other means of exercising that right but by coming in a body to vote and deliberate with the people of that other state the admission of the greater part of the inhabitants of italy to the privileges of roman citizens completely ruined the roman republic it was no longer possible to distinguish between who was and who was not a roman citizen no tribe could know its own members a rabble of any kind could be introduced into the assemblies of the people could drive out the real citizens and decide upon the affairs of the republic as if they themselves had been such but though america were to send fifty or sixty new representatives to parliament the doorkeeper of the house of commons could not find any great difficulty in distinguishing between who was and who was not a member though the roman constitution therefore was necessarily ruined by the union of rome with the allied states of italy there is not the least probability that the british constitution would be hurt by the union of great britain with her colonies that constitution on the contrary would be completed by it and seems to be imperfect without it the assembly which deliberates and decides concerning the affairs of every part of the empire in order to be properly informed ought certainly to have representatives from every part of it that this union however could be easily effectuated or that difficulties and great difficulties might not occur in the execution i do not pretend 
I have yet heard of none, however, which appear insurmountable. The principle, perhaps, arise not from the nature of things, but from the prejudices and opinions of the people, both on this and on the other side of the Atlantic. We on this side of the water are afraid lest the multitude of American representatives should overturn the balance of the Constitution, and increase too much either the influence of the crown on the one hand, or the force of the democracy on the other. But if the number of American representatives were to be in proportion to the produce of American taxation, the number of people to be managed would increase exactly in proportion to the means of managing them, and the means of managing to the number of people to be managed. The monarchical and democratical parts of the Constitution would, after the Union, stand exactly in the same degree of relative force with regard to one another as they had done before. The people on the other side of the water are afraid lest their distance from the seat of government might expose them to many oppressions, but the representatives in Parliament, of which the number ought from the first to be considerable, would easily be able to protect them from all oppression. The distance could not much weaken the dependency of the representative upon the constituent, and the former would still feel that he owed his seat in Parliament, and all the consequence which he derived from it, to the good will of the latter. It would be the interest of the former, therefore, to cultivate that good will by complaining, with all the authority of a member of the legislature, of every outrage which any civil or military officer might be guilty of in those remote parts of the empire. The distance of America from the seat of government, besides, the natives of that country might flatter themselves, with some appearance of reason too, would not be of very long continuance. Such has hitherto been the rapid progress of that country in wealth, population, and improvement, that in the course of little more than a century, perhaps, the produce of the American might exceed that of the British taxation. The seat of the empire would then naturally remove itself to that part of the empire which contributed most to the general defense and support of the whole. The discovery of America, and that of a passage to the East Indies by the Cape of Good Hope, are the two greatest and most important events recorded in the history of mankind. Their consequences have already been great, but in the short period of between two and three centuries which has elapsed since these discoveries were made, it is impossible that the whole extent of their consequences can have been seen. What benefits or what misfortunes to mankind may hereafter result from those great events, no human wisdom can foresee. By uniting in some measure the most distant parts of the world, by enabling them to relieve one another's wants, to increase one another's enjoyments, and to encourage one another's industry, their general tendency would seem to be beneficial. To the natives, however, both of the East and West Indies, all the commercial benefits which can have resulted from those events have been sunk and lost in the dreadful misfortunes which they have occasioned. These misfortunes, however, seem to have arisen rather from accident than from anything in the nature of those events themselves. At the particular time when these discoveries were made, the superiority of force happened to be so great on the side of the Europeans that they were enabled to commit with impunity every sort of injustice in those remote countries. Hereafter, perhaps, the natives of those countries may grow stronger, or those of Europe may grow weaker, and the inhabitants of all the different quarters of the world may arrive at that equality of courage and force which, by inspiring mutual fear, can alone overall the injustice of independent nations into some sort of respect for the rights of one another. 
but nothing seems more likely to establish this equality of force than that mutual communication of knowledge and of all sorts of improvements which an extensive commerce from all countries to all countries naturally or rather necessarily comes along with it in the meantime one of the principal effects of those discoveries has been to raise the mercantile system to a degree of splendor and glory which it could never otherwise have attained to it is the object of that system to enrich a great nation rather by trade and manufactures than by the improvement and cultivation of land rather by the industry of the towns than by that of the country but in consequence of those discoveries the commercial towns of europe instead of being the manufacturers and carriers for but a very small part of the world that part of europe which is washed by the atlantic ocean and the countries which lie round the baltic and mediterranean seas have now become the manufacturers for the numerous and thriving cultivators of america and the carriers and in some respects the manufacturers too for almost all the different nations of asia africa and america two new worlds have been opened to their industry each of them much greater and more extensive than the old one and the market of one of them growing still greater and greater every day the countries which possess the colonies of america and which trade directly to the east indies enjoy indeed the whole show and splendor of this great commerce other countries however notwithstanding all the invidious restraints by which it is meant to exclude them frequently enjoy a greater share of the real benefit of it the colonies of spain and portugal for example give more real encouragement to the industry of other countries than to that of spain and portugal in the single article of linen alone the consumption of those colonies amounts it is said but i do not pretend to warrant the quantity to more than three millions sterling a year but this great consumption is almost entirely supplied by france flanders holland and germany spain and portugal furnish but a small part of it the capital which supplies the colonies with this great quantity of linen is annually distributed among and furnishes a revenue to the inhabitants of those other countries the profits of it only are spent in spain and portugal where they help to support the sumptuous profusion of the merchants of cadiz and lisbon even the regulations by which each nation endeavors to secure to itself the exclusive trade of its own colonies are frequently more hurtful to the countries in favor of which they are established than to those against which they are established the unjust oppression of the industry of other countries falls back if i may say so upon the heads of the oppressors and crushes their industry more than it does that of those other countries by those regulations for example the merchant of hamburg must send the linen which he destines for the american market to london and he must bring back from thence the tobacco which he destines for the german market because he can neither send the one directly to america nor bring the other directly from thence by this restraint he is probably obliged to sell the one somewhat cheaper and to buy the other somewhat dearer than he otherwise might have done and his profits are probably somewhat abridged by means of it in this trade however between hamburg and london he certainly receives the returns of his capital much more quickly than he could possibly have done in the direct trade to america even though we should suppose what is by no means the case that the payments of america were as punctual as those of london in the trade therefore to which those regulations confine the merchant of hamburg his capital can keep in constant employment a much greater quantity of german industry than he could possibly have done in the trade from which he is excluded 
though the one employment therefore may to him perhaps be less profitable than the other it cannot be less advantageous to his country it is quite otherwise with the employment into which the monopoly naturally attracts if i may say so the capital of the london merchant that employment may perhaps be more profitable to him than the greater part of other employments but on account of the slowness of the returns it cannot be more advantageous to his country after all the unjust attempts therefore of every country in europe to engross to itself the whole advantage of the trade of its own colonies no country has yet been able to engross to itself anything but the expense of supporting in time of peace and of defending in time of war the oppressive authority which it assumes over them the inconveniencies resulting from the possession of its colonies every country has engrossed to itself completely the advantages resulting from their trade it has been obliged to share with many other countries at first sight no doubt the monopoly of the great commerce of america naturally seems to be an acquisition of the highest value to the undiscerning eye of giddy ambition it naturally presents itself amidst the confused scramble of politics and war as a very dazzling object to fight for the dazzling splendor of the object however the immense greatness of the commerce is the very quality which renders the monopoly of it hurtful or which makes one employment in its own nature necessarily less advantageous to the country than the greater part of other employments absorb a much greater proportion of the capital of the country than what would otherwise have gone to it the mercantile stock of every country it has been shown in the second book naturally seeks if one may say so the employment most advantageous to that country if it is employed in the carrying trade the country to which it belongs becomes the emporium of the goods of all the countries whose trade that stock carries on but the owner of that stock necessarily wishes to dispose of as great a part of those goods as he can at home he thereby saves himself the trouble risk and expense of exportation and he will upon that account be glad to sell them at home not only for a much smaller price but with somewhat a smaller profit than he might expect to make by sending them abroad he naturally therefore endeavors as much as he can to turn his carrying trade into a foreign trade of consumption if his stock again is employed in a foreign trade of consumption he will for the same reason be glad to dispose of at home as great a part as he can of the home goods which he collects in order to export to some foreign market and he will thus endeavour as much as he can to turn his foreign trade of consumption into a home trade the mercantile stock of every country naturally courts in this manner the near and shuns the distant employment naturally courts the employment in which the returns are frequent and shuns that in which they are distant and slow naturally courts the employment in which it can maintain the greatest quantity of productive labor in the country to which it belongs or in which its owner resides and shuns that in which it can maintain there the smallest quantity it naturally courts the employment which in ordinary cases is most advantageous and shuns that which in ordinary cases is least advantageous to that country but if in any one of those distant employments which in ordinary cases are less advantageous to the country the profit should happen to rise somewhat higher than what is sufficient to balance the natural preference which is given to nearer employments this superiority of profit will draw stock from those nearer employments till the profits of all return to their proper level this superiority of profit however is a proof that in the actual circumstances of the society those distant employments are somewhat understocked in proportion to other employments 
and that the stock of the society is not distributed in the properest manner among all the different employments carried on in it. It is a proof that something is either bought cheaper or sold dearer than it ought to be, and that some particular class of citizens is more or less oppressed, either by paying more or by getting less than what is suitable to that equality which ought to take place, and which naturally does take place, among all the different classes of them. Though the same capital never will maintain the same quantity of productive labor in a distant as in a near employment, yet a distant employment may be as necessary for the welfare of the society as a near one. The goods which the distant employment deals in being necessary, perhaps, for carrying on many of the nearer employments. But if the profits of those who deal in such goods are above their proper level, those goods will be sold dearer than they ought to be, or somewhat above their natural price, and all those engaged in the nearer employments will be more or less oppressed by this high price. Their interest, therefore, in this case, requires that some stock should be withdrawn from those nearer employments, and turned towards that distant one, in order to reduce its profits to their proper level, and the price of the goods which it deals in to their natural price. In this extraordinary case, the public interest requires that some stock should be withdrawn from those employments which, in ordinary cases, are more advantageous, and turn towards one which, in ordinary cases, is less advantageous to the public, and, in this extraordinary case, the natural interests and inclinations of men coincide as exactly with the public interest as in all other ordinary cases, and lead them to withdraw stock from the near, and turn it towards the distant employments. End of Book 4, Chapter 7, Part F.